0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: Welcome to episode 108 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I am Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy Baggerly. And we're going to do one more episode where we're looking back at the 2020 season before we forget that it happened entirely.
2: So, how you doing, Andy? The 2020 season is ongoing. There are many, many teams in the playoffs. Unfortunately, the Giants are not one of them.
1: They are not. How... How hard should Giants fans be rooting for the Padres? I mean, A, they're playing against the Dodgers. Should they not root for the Padres because of division rivalries? Are they fun and you can forget about the division stuff? Or I don't know. How should Giants fans feel about this?
2: I think they should gear up in Padres gear and maybe buy a (laughs) Fernando Tatis Jr. blonde dreadlocks wig and wear it underneath the Padres cap. And just go flip some bats and uh, uh, totally embrace the Padres. I mean, hey, I you know as a, just a baseball fan. Who wouldn't want to see the Padres advance and and see them on an even bigger stage? I mean, this is a fun team. It's a talented team. It's a team that should be good for a long time. And also, if you're a Giants fan, they're not the Dodgers. So, you know, I think all of that makes it pretty obvious, isn't it?
1: It's funny to me because back when I was in 2010, when I was uh, more of a fan than a a professional, I hated the Padres, just hated them. And it's funny to think about it now because I don't have feelings for the Padres, one way or the other, other than then they're just miraculously fun to watch. They are so much fun to watch. And, you know, especially if, they've, if they get lament and, and Clevenger back. I would love to watch, say, a Padres A's World Series. I would love to watch the Padres and the Yankees go at it. I mean, the Rays would be a lot of fun, too. There's a lot of matchups where I, I just want to watch the Padres
2: play more baseball. So you're saying that in your fandom, if you and the Padres were in the elevator together... And the Padres said, I think you're a terrible person, Grant. Your response would be straight out of the Don Draper playbook. And you would say... I don't think about you at all. Pretty much, pretty
1: much. But that's not true because I've spent a lot of time making fun of the Padres over the years. I mean, just, you know, once the Giants won a World Series, it was sort of fun to needle them. And then a second World Series, it was maybe a little less fun. After the third World Series, the needling, it just stops. It just, it starts being mean. Not You know, it's not needling anymore. It's just jabbing with a hot poker.
2: And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, all the no hitters were kind of in your face a little bit too. It's, oh, you've gone <laughs> yes. how many years as a franchise without ever, ever throwing a no-hitter, well, we're just going to no-hit you again this week, just for fun. I mean, that oh. that uh, that does seem a little bit cruel in retrospect.
1: It does, it does. All right, we'll talk about the 2020 season for the Giants, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to do a little awards ceremony. We're going to talk about who the Giants' MVP was, uh, who, their, who their Cy Young was, who their Rookie of the Year was, Manager of the Year. I don't know, let's go for it. Who was Manager of the Year?
2: <laughs> who was... <laughs> Who is manager of the year? Well, we have one manager to pick from, um, and yet 13 coaches on the staff. Um, (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to give it to them all equally because we have no idea who really behind the scenes did the most work or brought the most value. But, um, Gabe Kapler put that entire staff together. And so I think he gets a lot of credit, um, for, you know, the way that they were able to get improvement and, and, and this was a development oriented staff. And, uh, they were able to develop not only the players like Mauricio Dupont, who learned center field on the fly and uh, and save more runs out there than anybody at any position for the Giants this season, but Brandon Belt and Brandon Crawford. You know, they they that was Gabe Kapler's credo. It's like, hey, I'm all about human potential and getting more out of everyone, and everyone has the potential to grow no matter what stage you are at in your career. And Brandon Crawford posted the highest slugging percentage of his career, so I think that. Uh, Gabe Kapler would be my choice as manager of the year, controversial as that may be, because he he put that staff together that was a very unconventional staff and they ended up being the right staff for the right time.
1: Manager of the year, according to the two sweetest words in the English language, default, default, default. Now, you're right. He did a very good job. It was so easy to poke at him and to poke at the huge coaching staff when things weren't going well. When the Giants were a really wretched defensive team, it was so easy to just fire off a tweet like, you think with 700 coaches that they'd teach him how to catch or something like that. Uh, and it it was it was an uphill slog for them and i think they weathered it pretty darn well and your piece was fantastic it, it just showed that that the coaching thing that might be like a market inefficiency to have this many coaches to have uh so much information tailored for specific players and having people who can communicate specific information that's great it's exactly what the giants
2: needed apparently and you're looking at a time in the sport where you know, there's almost a de facto salary cap, right? And teams are spending the same ways. They're capped internationally now. They're capped in the draft with what they can spend. So where can you invest uh, more money, or more revenue, or more attention uh, to try to get a competitive advantage? If if you can't, if you're limited in the number of ways you can bring talent into the system, well, then make it more efficient to develop that talent. And uh, and part of that could be developing at the major league level. Um, so yeah, I, whether you call it a market inefficiency or just an opportunity to do more um, where you're not limited, um, it, it, it certainly was something that uh, that uh, Gabe Kapler felt that uh, there was the potential to to improve and to sort of get a competitive advantage and this season it turned into I think a real legitimate advantage because guys had to get to the ballpark later than ever before they had to spend less time at the ballpark they had to stagger out their workouts and everything and you know th- there just wasn't the opportunity to have big team-wide meetings so you needed more coaching bandwidth to be able to deal with everybody on a little bit more of an expedient and in an in individualized basis and uh and they had that bandwidth to to do that so Um, Yeah, I think without a doubt, it was a really positive season for this coaching staff.
1: Here's how I uh, picture it happening, where in another organization, you might have the uh, stat people in the front office, the abacus twiddlers. Uh, They are saying uh, they're putting these reports together. They're saying, uh, okay, uh, Lamette likes to go high in the zone and your weakness is here you want here's where you want your swing decisions to be um go get them you know here's the information and they're throwing it at the players where if you have the extra coaching you can really synthesize that and break it down on an individual level and make sure that the message isn't just on an iPad somewhere but it's it's being actively communicated by by someone who is very fluent in this is that am, am i you know, reading too much into it. Am I dismissing other organizations too
2: much? Uh, but that's how I see it working. Is is that close? You know, I think so. I think more than anything, when when you hear a Brandon Crawford talk about, "Hey, we have a better idea about what opposing pitchers are trying to do to us," I think the scouting reports were always there. The information was always there. It just wasn't maybe as crystallized for them as this is how this guy's going to get you out that doesn't mean you have to feed into that, Uh, you know, wait for this pitch in this location instead, because that is what we show that you can do damage on. And I think it just kind of helped them go up with a certain frame of mind that was, you know, you can be more disciplined when you're looking specifically for for a pitch in a location. And you make it very simple in your swing decisions, just not to swing at the other stuff, even if it's in the zone. So that seems to be where they've, made the biggest difference on the offensive side is, you know, they really broke it down for for hitters uh, to let them know, you know, hey, not only this is what this guy throws, but this is where he throws it. This is where, you know, you can do damage against him uh, based on your swing and your hot zones and this person's hot and cold zones. So I don't think any of that was revolutionary, but clearly the way they communicated that information made it accessible to the hitters in a way that wasn't before. So, I mean, that's coaching 101, I guess.
1: All right, let's move on to the MVP of the team. And this is actually going to be fairly easy, I think. Who do you have? Maybe I'm overlooking someone.
2: So I'm kind of thinking that maybe you could make a case for Brandon Belt. He Mm -hmm. led the team with a 1.015. He had a 425 on base percentage. You know, he led them in OPS+. I almost kind of feel like this is Krook and Kipe, where I have to pick and leave a pick for you. And either way, if we, either way we do this, it's... Uh, I think we just agree. Yeah, I think it's Mike Yastrzemski, right? Yeah.
1: He had, you know, the offensive season that he had and just the raw stats, and uh, he was tied for the National League lead in triple. He had the OPS uh, close to 1,000. He almost hit 300. He had an on-base percentage of 400 on the nose. That's all... Great. Great, in that you can make a case specifically on the context free numbers, but then you go context and wins probability added so what this stat is is say the giants have a 50 percent chance to win a baseball game according to you know where they are in in the game if they're tied or or what have you and then mike Ostremsky does something and now they have a 75 percent chance uh, to win the game well you get 0.25 wpa you've you, it's a very simple stat in a way it's complicated but it's not he led baseball in wpa which means that these hits weren't just like great hits in a vacuum. He helped his team with his hits more than anybody else in baseball. And you felt it. You felt it when he would come up and be like, boy, if he did something here, the Giants would make a good spot. And then whoops, he did it. You saw it with your own eyes. So the anecdotal evidence uh, matches up there.
2: It just means that he did the most in the biggest spots to leverage more wins than anybody else in baseball. Freddie Freeman was second. Then Brandon Lowe from the Tampa Bay Rays. And Mookie Betts was sixth. I mean, there's some really good players on this list Marcel Ozuna you know like Marcel Ozuna you know drove in more runs and and had a bigger offensive year and that tells you that not only did he get big hits and big leverage spots but he also got a lot of garbage time hits and garbage time RBIs which okay you don't thumb your nose at that at all but it just goes to show you how much of Mikey Stremski's production was in the most important spots for his team maybe that's sort of a clutchiness stat I guess so he was very clutchy And, and in actual war and all those other things, he grades out you know great too. And part of that is his defensive value. So And he would have played in all fi- uh, 60 games if he hadn't had the calf injury. He was out there every day. He produced against lefties and righties. For the Giants to become really good again, I think it really helped them to have that expanded roster this past season. It gave them a little more coverage in the bullpen when they really needed it, especially early in the year. And they were able to match up a little more and, and pinch hit for guys in the second or third inning uh, if you wanted Dickerson instead of Ruff up there etc cetera, etc cetera. but at some point you need to have everyday players who are really good big league players and that's the easiest way to to win and to pile up victories and and the giants don't have enough of those guys, but they do have one in Mikey Stramsky.
1: Yeah. He just does everything well. And that's, that's one of the reasons why, you know, war counts all this. It's the base running. It's the d- defense. It's the arm, you know, he, he just does everything well in the field and him being able to stay in there against lefties is so huge for those reasons you were talking about. It's, it's one, uh, fewer bench spot that, that Kepler has to deploy in the starting lineup. You know, it, it's, it's another quiver that he, he's got, uh, um, or another arrow in his quiver. Um, so that that's important. The one thing that bugged me about Yastrzemski, though, is all year I was waiting for him to catch up to his walk total from last year, and he fell two walks short because of that silly calf injury. Uh, he ah. had 30 walks in 225 plate appearances this year. Last year he had 32 in 411. So almost twice as, or half as many uh, plate appearances in almost the same
2: number of walks. And let's not forget that he won the Willie Mack Award, too, which doesn't get you any oh, yeah. WPA points, but is still a pretty darn cool thing. And I think that's really cool because this is a guy his whole life who has been associated by virtue of his very unique last name with a Hall of Famer. And now he gets to associate with a different Hall of Famer. And I think that's really neat. That is, yeah. I It's getting to the point where I kind of forget
1: who his grandfather is at times, where uh, last year, that's the first thing I thought of. I would like just look at his name and go, that's right. They have Carl Ostromsky's grandson in there, haha! And now it's just like, oh, this is Mike Estremsky. He is a certified good player for the San Francisco Giants, and and it's fun to watch him play. So I I kind of forget sometimes.
2: Yeah, no, and and that's a testament to just what he's what he's meant and and uh, and the career he's carving out for himself. And um, I think he is safely our MVP. All right, uh, let's go
1: to the Cy Young. I think this might be easy, but I, I might I might throw a. Uh, Curveball—that's a pitching term. I might throw a curveball up there. All right, who do you have for Cy Young of the 2020 Giants?
2: Um. So I. Yeah. I. I'm trying to think of who else you'd throw in there. I mean, Tyler Rogers led the National League with 29 uh, appearances, and the ERA was never going to recover after the extra inning loss to the Padres. It ended up being 4.50, and I think sneakily he had a good season, even though I think he gave up too many hits. Um, so you could make some kind of case for somebody who just takes the ball every day like he did, or Tony Watson. Um, I, I just think it has to be Kevin Gossman. Uh, 362 ERA, uh, made uh, 12 appearances, 10 of them starts. Um, you know, he, he's up there in the top 10 in the National League in terms of, uh, I think, hits per nine and whip uh, was really good. Um, he struck out uh, 11.9 batters per nine innings. And and really kind of gave them a Jason Schmidt in his heyday type of season and would have been a a pretty tough, tough customer in game one of a of a division series, I think. So um, that that would to me, I I, I think it's it would be hard for me to make a case for anybody other than Kevin Costman.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the correct call. Uh, You did actually land on the guy i was going to make a a devil's advocate case for which is tyler rogers uh 29 appearances he allowed a run in five of them in two of those it was ugly 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 and that's why his era is so high but in, in 25 of those appearances, he was nice and scoreless. He had a couple of multi-inning outings. He was striking out lefties, striking out righties, getting ground balls. He was a lot of fun to watch. And you could tell uh, how much Gabe Kapler relied on him uh, throughout the entire season. And that's another thing where after the blowups, he was still someone that Kapler relied on. And, and that's... That says a lot because it would have been very easy to say, this guy throws 84 miles an hour. I need this guy to not make me look bad. And that's not what happened. He said, okay, I trust this guy. I trust him to get lefties and righties out. And for the most part, it, he rewarded Kepler."
2: I would not have him face Kevin Pillar in the future, however. no, that was,
1: <laughs> You know, when he came up the very first time, I, I tweeted something about how this could go either way. I could see Tyler Rogers just, dominating pilar and i could also see pilar dominating rogers just because there's a funkiness to rogers but there's a funkiness to pilar he's kind of like a submariner of hitters like he just don't know what he's gonna swing at it, it, he's a funny one and and it turns out he's really prepared for the funk that tyler rogers brings and yeah i wouldn't like that matchup in the future
2: i guess uh you know it's it's almost too bad that we didn't see uh, a healthier drew smiley because i mean he was I mean, he struck out 14.4 per nine innings. I mean, he was doing ridiculous things from a strikeout perspective. And uh, I I wonder if uh, just how difficult it'll be for the Giants to re-sign both Gossman and Smiley. They've certainly said that they want to do that. Um, And it's going to take some time to establish what the market's going to be for those guys. But that, I mean, maybe that's not a a, a playoff rotation one-two. But they're two pretty darn serviceable guys with, with stuff that you know will miss bats. And, uh, um, you know, I, I guess my point being that, uh, you know, Gossman is the easy choice with Tyler Rogers um, You can make a case for him. But Drew Smiley and Gossman would have been a really interesting um, Giants Cy Young uh, argument if, if Smiley had stayed healthy all year.
1: Yeah, underrated component to the Giants missing the postseason is, is that finger injury for Drew Smiley. Yeah. That's not your typical injury. That's not even like an oblique tweak. It's 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 such a freak uh, finger strain. What? And that could have, you know, the Giants could have been playing. They could have been contenders.
2: Well, 2020 has pretty much given the finger to all of us, I suppose. Yeah, oh boy, it sure has. All
1: right, well, let's go to rookie of the year in... I'm trying to... St- Think of how many rookies were actually on this team. I I think this might, these awards are pretty easy. Um, but but I, I think it's got to be Dubon, right? I'm actually going to go a different direction. I'm
2: going to go with Caleb uh, Baragar. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 that's a good one. That's a good one. Make your case. Well, so I do believe Dubon is was officially a rookie. And uh, Joey Bart, by the way, will still be a rookie next year because he didn't have enough at-bats or, or, or service time to lose his rookie qualifications. And I don't believe they're going to... Um, prorate that, uh, his service time in terms of rookie qualifications. Uh, but Caleb Arroyo was a guy who was not in major league spring training in February and March. Like he did not have a locker in Scottsdale stadium. He was in minor <laughs> league camp and, uh, they brought him up, um, for the second camp. And you could see from the very first time he took the mound and was throwing, you know, intra-squad BP. Okay, that's why he's here. <laughs> and you know, he he was on the AAA roster at the very end of last season and started the AAA championship game and pitched tremendously. Uh, and so they know that he can handle a big moment. And yeah, I mean, the the command, obviously, he's he's got a little bit of work to do. It looks like he's out of sorts in his delivery. But then you look up at the end of the year and he issued five walks in 22 and a third innings uh, and struck out 19. His stuff plays, his fastball above the zone is a tough pitch to lay off. He's got a breaking ball that I think once he gets a little more command of that, it's going to be a really a wipeout pitch. He started an opener and won it. He led the team with five pitcher wins. (laughs) <laughs> um, which maybe that's not a stat that we care about anymore. But yeah, it just means he he pitched in a lot of games where they shook hands at the end, and it was 5-1. and one. You know, the record isn't completely meaningless. Um, but yeah, I just thought he was a guy who just had a bulldog mentality, and you could tell that he wanted to be out there and he wanted the ball. And in a year where we saw, you know, Trevor Gott blow up and we saw Sam Coonrod kind of, you know, melt down, um, just to have relievers who just looked like they were on the attack, and they were the aggressors out there. That was what this team needed more of, and uh, they got it from a guy who'd never even spent any time in big league camp, so I I give hats off to him for the season he had.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, point. and w- you mentioned the five walks in 24 uh, games. Three of them came in one sort of mini meltdown where he just couldn't find the plate, and Capillard had to keep him out there because of the three batter minimum, so that that— most of his walks came in that outing and then the next time he came out he's fixed all better and it, it's remarkable he went out there and just did not walk people uh that 20. Let's see, 21 out of his 24 games, no walks issued. And it, you know, obviously there's no get one guy out, you know, lefty stuff going on because of the three batter minimum. He had to face at least three batters every time, just was not walking people. And that's really, really impressive.
2: You allow 6.9 hits per nine innings and you don't walk anybody. I mean, that's just, it just makes it really hard to to put up crooked numbers uh, against a pitcher like
1: that. Yeah, absolutely. And he started the season a little slow when it came to the strikeouts, you know, for a while he wasn't missing too many bats and then by the end of the season uh he was he was striking out at least a batter per inning i believe uh so he he's someone to watch next year as you know he had his he took his his lumps a little bit early on but as it, as he got as the season went on he got stronger um, i'm going to go with Mauricio dubon and i just he is such a proof of concept guy for me that the giants were able to diagnose and entreat players who are you know not doing well they are able to say okay this is going wrong with this player let's fix it because at the beginning he looked like someone who didn't belong in the majors he looked like someone who might have been ticketed for sacramento if he kept chasing outside of the zone and then by the end of the year it he's a he's a productive hitter he's a controlled hitter there, there's uh violence in the swing and that combined with his defense the base running you know a work in progress but uh, all told he was uh he was a fun player to watch develop
2: yeah and and not only did he have to develop at the plate and 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 really turn things around offensively but you know they they presented him with this center field idea and he was all for it and when they made him the everyday center fielder it really corresponded very neatly with where the season turned around and you know granted they finished 29 and 31 they didn't make the playoffs they missed it by the weird a weird tiebreaker But they were 8 and 16, and the the season could have had an entirely different cast to it uh, if they hadn't turned it around and played better baseball. And I think that's important. It, it, it gives them a little bit of a springboard in the next season uh, and, you know, gave some people the idea that, you know, there's their best days are going to be ahead of them. And Dubon was a big part of that turnaround. Putting him in center field allowed them to stabilize second base, allowed them to stabilize their defense, put a better defender in right field with Yastrzemski. And, you know, he led them in in a, a run saved Um According to the Fielding Bible, uh, DeBond saved three runs in center field. So he was a credit out there when, you know, he's learning the position on the fly. So in a season where he had to do a lot of figuring things out, um, he got better as the year went on. Now, you know, he made some really, really Bad base running decisions, <laughs> trying to get things started. And I think he he's, you know, but he's a smart kid. And I think he's got a lot of aptitude. And he's going to learn from those mistakes. And probably better that he made them in a season like this uh, than, you know, uh, because in, in maybe in the future, he's somebody who's going to score from second base on a, on a sack fly in a postseason series or, or a wild pitch like Matt Duffy did. And and then all you do is talk about just how smart and how aggressive and, and, and how uh, creative he was to, to make something happen. So, um, you know, may, maybe that will come out in time. Um, but uh, overall, I think he's got to be pretty happy with the season he had. All right,
1: last one. We don't have to go too far into this, but this is the one that actually has a, a little bit of a debate going on. This is comeback player of the year. And I think there's a, two just outstanding candidates and not necessarily just on the Giants, but you could make a case for, I don't know, maybe maybe there's something going on. Maybe they could win this actual award in the National League this year. Comeback player of the year, who do you got?
2: Oh, I think you got to go with Brandon Crawford. I mean, a guy who is going to be platooned and and, and look like okay, he's playing for a manager who doesn't owe him anything, and, and how how is this going to go? Um, I mean, he looked like the air was going out of the balloon, and, and he had a better season. Defensively, I think he had a better season, too. There were a couple errors mixed in, but you know, overall, he I think had his best defensive year in a, in a couple seasons, and and then he posted uh, a better OPS plus and slugging percentage than he even posted in his Silver Slugger year in twenty fifteen. So, uh, but I want to hear who else you've got. But Crawford would be my pick.
1: Uh, you know, the only the other option would be Brandon Belt, and he had his career worst season in, in twenty nineteen. He had an OPS plus of ninety seven. Uh, strikeouts were up, walks were were or on base percentage was his lowest since his rookie season. Uh, he looked. Like like someone who might be broken and and, you know when you're 31 and you're having your career worst season that doesn't have to get better you know 32 is not ancient but that might be the start you saw when when Aaron Rowan lost it he he lost it and sometimes a player just loses it and there were questions about belt and he came back with his strongest season and you know sample size because of the short season sure but that was his strongest season and he almost had a a one-to-one strikeout to walk ratio which tells me that there's Something going on because he wasn't striking out as much as he had, uh and, and he had a fantastic season. Now that said, it's got to be Crawford. Crawford looked even more cooked last year, and to see him put the the year up that he did, that was that was remarkable.
2: Yeah, yeah. The one thing with Belt, I, I one thing that he started doing that I don't remember him doing in the past is when he would get into the box and he was very quiet, and he would gather himself, and then he would kind of snap his neck real quickly and look at the pitcher. And he would do that every pitch. I don't know if you noticed that. It was almost like, like a lo- a lo-fi Mike Fetters. Yeah, and <laughs> it, I mean Mike Fetters would do it like dramatically, right? Um, but but it was like he was gathering himself and locking himself in and then boom, he, he looks out at the pitcher. And I was going to, in a normal season when I can just like hang out at his locker, I was going to ask him about that. Um, and I, I still will ask him about that. You know, what, is that just like a way for him to mentally set himself for something? But, you know, whether it was a couple of things that Belt did or, or Crawford was standing a, a little more upright and, and clearly a little more of an open stance, almost looking like a left-handed Longoria, I think. Um and you saw Joey Bart kind of had that same similar stance both these guys worked hard to make some adjustments and these, these coaches worked with them to make adjustments and and uh, and and they both yeah they both got better and they're a big part of why this Giants offense was was really the 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 part of the team that that carried carried the way for for most of the season especially at home so and it, it I, I bet it's got to do wonders for these guys too to feel like they're actually going to get rewarded a little bit more fairly at home uh, it's, it, they've had to play their whole careers in a really tough hitting environment for a left-handed hitter. So, uh, I, I gotta think that that maybe has helped on a psychological level too. Um, but, uh, yeah, both for, for us to be arguing the candidacy for both of them as comeback player of the year is a pretty good sign. It is. And what's remarkable is that both players,
1: uh, started the season poorly. I mean, both both players looked cooked at some point. Well, let's see, Brandon Crawford was hitting on August 8th. Uh, no, August 9th. Let's go there. He had a 171 batting average with a 171 slugging percentage, which means no extra base hits for the first two, three weeks of the year. Uh, An OPS under 400. That's not good. And you're thinking, this guy is cooked. This guy is, just there's no nice way to put it when you're looking at him struggle that mightily to start the season. After that, after August 9th, he had a 9-13 OPS, and the defense, like you said, got better. And Brandon Belt was just as bad to start the year. And it's remarkable to see not just the season that they had, but how they were able to turn it around and not get too in their own heads.
2: Yeah, and, and, you know, obviously, I think for the Giants to have aspirations of being a playoff team next year, um, they're going to be counting on both those guys to, you know, repeat those performances or not drop off too, too, um, dramatically from, from that because, uh, um, you know, we all, we know there's only so much turnover that they're going to have with this offensive group. So yeah, they're just going to have to keep it up.
1: All right. This has been episode one, zero eight of the bags and Brisby podcast. Congratulations to our winners. Uh, we'll, what are we going to send them, Andy? Um,
2: let's see, uh, what do we have to send them? Uh, I think I still have my Giants giveaway Snuggie from several years ago. I could, but they probably have one of those.
1: Yeah, I lucked into uh, some hand sanitizer, so I'll, I'll get it right out to them. All right. Oh, that that's useful. <laughs> this has been episode 108 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back on Thursday to talk more Giants stuff. Thanks to Tanika Smothers for producing us, and we'll see you then.